Well, the other day I read an interesting article about some physicians who were sharing their experience with something called the ostrich effect. And the ostrich ostrich effect uh, describes the way many people respond to bad news. It's like the proverbial ostrich. Instead of confronting the reality of their situation, they bury their heads in the sand and just hope their trouble will go away. And so regarding health, when some people receive a, a bad medical diagnosis, they don't want to confront it and they de- delay treatment. Maybe things will get better. They don't want to confront the reality that they have a long and painful road of treatment ahead of them. They still look and feel good, so let's not think about it. They, choose, they just choose to live with confidence and optimism. But if that confidence is misplaced and leads them to not seek treatment, it's not doing them any good. It can be a fatal mistake. A similar fear of confronting reality leads people to just put off seeing the doctor in the first place. Maybe they know in their body something feels wrong, something feels off, they know deep down, but they they fear a grim diagnosis, so they don't even go get checked out. Better not to know. Ignorance is bliss, live in denial. One doctor reported a, a woman came in with a stage four fulminant tumor oozing out of her chest, the article said. He asked why she didn't come in sooner, and she replied, I, I just thought it would go away. We don't like to face trouble. We like to run from it or deny it. At least kick the can down the road, make it tomorrow's problem. And that is vastly easier until tomorrow comes and then it becomes vastly harder. This ostrich effect is quite sad when it happens with physical sickness because it usually results in people seeking help when it's too late. Their fate is already sealed. But it's even more tragic when it happens with someone's spiritual condition because then eternity is at stake. This same phenomenon of living in denial is easily observable when it comes to spiritual matters. Now it suggests scores of people know deep down that they have a sin problem. They're, they're not right with God, but they don't really want to give up their cherished lifestyle. They don't want to change and they don't want to confront the reality of judgment. Convicting thoughts as they come are just pushed out of their mind. They'll, they'll worry about their sin tomorrow. They'll get right with God tomorrow. No need to make an appointment with the good doctor right away. And so self-deception sets in. Some people deceive themselves through a little religion. They, they go to church. They'll read the Bible every now and then. They'll even give some money. They're doing the right things, enough to appease their conscience and keep them from looking in the mirror to evaluate their true spiritual condition. Others, though, they, they've learned better. They know that salvation does not come through good works. It comes by believing faith in Jesus or saved by faith, right? They know that, so they, they claim to believe. Even though their lives are completely out of line, they, they comfort themselves in the fact that they confess Jesus as Lord. They believe all the right things, and that, that's all it takes, right? But here's the problem with this. Yes, we are saved by faith alone. That is true. But the challenge is that according to the Bible, there's such a thing as a false faith. A, a faith that might say and believe the right things, but still doesn't save. And so how do you know you don't have that? There's such a thing as a true and a false faith. It really begs the question, how do you distinguish between the two? What marks off a false, unsaving type of faith? Wouldn't you want to know? Don't you think a checkup with a physician of souls is a good idea at this point? I mean, you can't afford to bury your head in the sand when it comes to the condition of your soul. The cost of self-deception is, is too high here. But sadly, too many still choose to live in a type of spiritual denial and they comfort themselves with, with a false assurance. But they'll only receive the rudest of awakenings on, on the last day. And the reality of this tragedy was affirmed to us by Jesus himself in our passage from last week in Matthew chapter 7. You can turn there, Matthew chapter 7. Near the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, he gives this stark warning. I'll read as you turn, Matthew seven, twenty-one through 23, verses from last week. So he says near the end, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name, cast out demons and in your name, perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. As we learned, you've got a group of people here who profess to be Christians. They regard Jesus as Lord. They appear orthodox. 
They have, they have the right belief in who Jesus is. They seem to have his identity right. We're not talking about atheists or pagans here. They're not even unbelievers. They claim to believe in him. And furthermore, they claim to have worked wonders in his name. But all their claims prove to be deficient because on that last day, they're, they're turned away from the kingdom. They're condemned by Jesus himself. They confessed him, but he in turn confesses that he never knew them. Not even a little bit did he know them. He never knew them. This is an absolute rejection. They're then told to depart. They're banished from his presence in the eternal kingdom. Now, the reality of a coming judgment is not shocking news to us. Scripture everywhere leads us to believe there will be a a final judgment of all. But what makes this passage so uniquely shocking is that you have this group of people who claim to be believers. And they were absolutely convinced they possessed salvation. But they didn't. Their salvation and their assurance of salvation were entirely false. In reality, these people were like those in Titus 1.16, which says they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. Their confession of Jesus as Lord was vain. It was hollow, proven by the fact that their lives were characterized by lawlessness, as Jesus says. They thought they could get away with calling Jesus Lord without actually following him as Lord, but that's the nature of false faith, not true faith. Now, it's not my intention this morning to preach through these verses again. We did that last week in in great detail, and if you weren't here, I I would encourage you to go download and, and listen to that message. But this text and its subject matter is worthy of further consideration Because this passage gives us, I think, by far the greatest example of false assurance. What is the assurance of salvation? I mean, put simply, it's the confidence that you are saved. That your name is written in the book of life. That you will go to heaven when you die. Is assurance of salvation possible? Yes. In fact, scripture even presents it as normative for believers. 2 Peter 1.10 We have the command to be all the more diligent to make certain of his calling and choosing of you. It's presented as not an impossible task, something we can do. You can make certain of this calling and choosing. And likewise, the whole purpose of John's first epistle was to give the church assurance. He writes 1 John 5.13, speaking of his letter, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. They already believe he wants them to know that they have eternal life. That's possible. Believers can and should gain assurance of their salvation. But again, what makes this subject so challenging is that there's such a thing as false faith and false assurance, which Matthew 7 proves. These people had it. And next to sin itself, is there anything as dangerous to a person's soul as false assurance? It's like having a loved one who's completely sick, they're dying, but they're convinced they're totally fine. And therefore, they refuse to go to the doctor and get any treatment, seek help. I mean, how how do you help that person? Their self-deception matched with false assurance is dooming them. What do you do? Your only hope would be to graciously yet firmly try and expose their false assurance that they might be convicted and it's time to go see the doctor. I, I need to get some help. That is what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 7. He's giving the sermon to his disciples, but he knows, as he said, there will be many tares among the wheat. He says there will be many who call out to him on that day, Lord, Lord, but are are turned away from the kingdom. And on that last day, it'll be too late. There will be no more room for repentance on that day. The door to the kingdom will be closed. It's over. But he says all this because today is not that day. Today is not that day, the door is still open. All can still enter into this kingdom by faith and repentance. And so what is the most loving thing you can do for people who are convinced of their spiritual health, but in reality are sick and lost? Well, trying to wake them up, warn them, remove their false assurance. Hopefully that can convict them that they can go to the physician of souls and receive real treatment is good news before it's too late. Here in Matthew 7, Jesus himself calls out one big means of false assurance. And in this group, for these people, it was miraculous deeds. We saw in verse 22, 
They claimed to work wonders in the name of Jesus. That was their, the grounds of their assurance of salvation was, but look at all these things we did for you. And they pointed to the miraculous. But as we learn, not even signs and wonders are sure or sufficient proofs of salvation. Because there's also such a thing as false signs and wonders. I'm not going to revisit that. But this reason is just the tip of the iceberg, though. Scripture reveals there are many means of false assurance. And that is what I want us to consider this morning. Why do we need to do this? I think we'd all agree that like, the greatest nightmare has to be hearing from the Lord on the last day. I never knew you. Depart from me. If, if that level of self-deception is possible, how do you know that won't happen to you? You know that by examining yourself, which is something we're commanded to do. 2 Corinthians 13.5 tells us, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. You should never shy away from doing that, that the believer is meant to live in confidence before the Lord, not in fear, but in confidence in salvation, in Christ. You can and you should gain assurance. How do you do that? Well, in the negative, one way is to make sure your assurance is not unfounded, or we can say it's not founded on the wrong things. If, if you know what all the sandy foundations of false assurance look like, you can be sure to avoid building your house of faith there. And it, you never know. There might even be some here this morning who need such a wake-up call. There might be some who need to come to their senses, wake up, repent, and turn to Jesus to receive his gift of salvation for real for the first time. Either way, all can benefit from just further considering the means of false assurance so that's what we're going to do. What are some of the biggest wrong ways people convince themselves that they are spiritually healthy when they're not? What does biblical wisdom have to say about the false grounds of assurance? Well, let's find out from the word to make sure your house of faith is not built on sand. And so with this in mind, our time together, I want to show you five means of false assurance. Five means our grounds of false assurance. In addition to what we already learned in Matthew 7, where he gave us at least one, here's five more. We begin with probably the most prevalent one. Number one, relying on a conversion experience. Relying on a conversion experience. And I think we have to start here because with America especially, this, this has probably become the number one grounds of false assurance. Relying on a conversion experience. What is Conversion. Conversion is that necessary human response to the gospel. It's simply faith plus repentance equals conversion. Faith plus repentance in, in the gospel. And by definition, every true believer is going to have some conversion experience. At one point, you were not believing. Now you are believing. How did that happen? That story is your conversion experience. And it could be something radical, like the Apostle Paul being blinded on the road to Damascus. Or it could be more mundane, like, like the eight-year-old raised to know the Lord who comes to a moment of true faith. Either way, though, both of those testimonies would be supernatural because they both represent new birth. Ephesians 2.1 says we all are, are dead in our trespasses and sins. But it's God who's rich in mercy who makes us alive in Christ. And whenever God raises dead sinners to life, conversion will be the result. Everyone then is going to have that experience of coming to repentance and faith and the circumstances of which are going to be different for everyone. But while a conversion experience is necessary for salvation, it is not sufficient for assurance. There are two problems here. First is that conversion experiences themselves can be false. And there are scores of people who've had moving conversion experiences but then later in life, if not very soon thereafter, they completely fall away, proving they were not truly born again. What do you think? Is it very possible for someone to remain unregenerate, but have a, an emotional high and profess faith in Jesus, but it's not real? That happens all the time. And if that person then bases the assurance of their salvation on that one experience, they're likely to be deceived. And I think, again, this has been a huge problem with American Christianity, especially in the past 200 years. 
You might recall something called the Second Great Awakening in the early 1800s. They were trying to recapture the, 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 the special fervor and uh, you know, impact of the First Great Awakening. But you had many preachers like Charles Finney start using what were called new measures to enhance revival. And one of these new measures is something we call today the altar call. Back then, they called it the nervous bench. There's a bench at the front of a tent or a meeting place. Uh, all these services, and they would invite sinners to come forward to the bench, receive prayer, and have a, a breakthrough experience of faith. And later on, you had famed evangelists like Billy Sunday, Billy Graham. They would employ similar methods. They'd preach a moving evangelistic message that the choir would be singing just as I am, like on repeat. And they would invite sinners to, to come forward and make a decision for Jesus. And that music is not going to stop until a sufficient number of people come forward. Evangelists would then start tracking and counting the number of decisions made for Jesus. And that, it became part of their platform. Literally this week, thinking about this sermon, I, I found a, a social media account of a guy, a, an evangelist. And on his account, he boasts of leading or having led two million people in making a decision for Jesus. But I think that's what it really is. Just, it's just a boast. This strategy has evolved over the years where more and more churches are relying on uh, increasingly manipulative techniques to just get decisions, to get people to make a decision for Jesus, because that's what they can count. Now, don't get me wrong. It, it's never wrong to call sinners to repent and believe in Jesus. That's right. And even an altar call by itself is, is not inherently evil. Have many people been saved at these crusades? Yes. But look, the, the data is in. Uh, of all these people at these you know, high-pressure environments who make a decision for Jesus, how many actually start following him? How many really come to live like a Christian, even just like attend a local church? It's a very small fraction. Countless of such people, even by their own admission, will reveal that their decision to follow Jesus was a kind of a heat-of-the-moment thing. Later in life, Billy Graham himself admitted that he believed maybe about 25% of people who came to his crusades uh, actually, who made a decision at his crusades, actually became Christians. Other studies have followed up with such people and put that number at 6%. Whatever the numbers are, it's very clear that false conversions, the number is dangerously high. And this is a re reason for great caution when you're looking to your conversion experience for assurance, it's, it's not that hard to manipulate human nature or human emotions. You know, from youth camps to praise concerts to evangelistic crusades, I mean, heartstrings are not that hard to pull. You can get someone to say, Jesus is Lord, Lord, like the people in Matthew 7. And for some people, their conversion will be genuine. We, we always praise God for that. It's what we want, but... Just make sure you don't confuse raising a hand or signing a card or repeating some prayer with salvation. Don't confuse coming forward with actually coming to Christ. Don't confuse walking an aisle with the Christian walk. And especially if your conversion experience was born out of an emotional high, just be discerning. Be discerning with it. But that's not the only problem with relying on a conversion experience for present assurance. Even if we can say and assume your conversion experience was genuine, there's a second problem here. Namely, that conversion lives in the past. Assurance lives in the present. Your past decision to follow Jesus, while it may have been true, is still not a grounds for present-day assurance. The faith that saves is living and active. Scripture consistently portrays saving faith as an ongoing reality. Not like a one and done decision of the past, but something that's living, active. Like John 6, 47, Jesus said, he who believes has eternal life. It's a great verse on assurance, but notice believes is a present participle. He has in mind an ongoing, continual belief, not just a one-time past tense decision. Faith and repentance are meant to be ongoing realities in the life of a believer Hebrews 10.22 tells us to draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. But then verse 23 adds, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. 
you have to hang on. You have to hold fast. Your side is perseverance. God will preserve, but you must persevere. Hold fast and persist in your faith presently until the end. So the point is, if your faith and repentance live entirely in the past, they give you no solid ground for assurance in the present. In the parable of the soils, it's not good enough that the seed germinates. The measure of good soil is not that the seed germinates and springs up. Even the seed sown on the rocky soil sprang up. But the measure of good soil is having seed that germinates, grows, bears fruit. So it goes with every true believer. So you can identify every true believer. But just be cautioned against relying on a conversion experience for your assurance. It's led more than one astray. Secondly, relying on religious culture. Relying on religious culture. What is culture? Culture simply refers to the unique customs, values, and beliefs of a given people group. Often expressed in their behavior, their speech, their institutions, their art, their media, and so on. And so in this regard, Christianity has its own culture. And not necessarily a bad thing. It's really unavoidable. As Christians gather and spend time together, their, their speech and behavior is just going to naturally reflect their values and their worldview. So you get a Christian culture. Christian culture can be seen, for example, in certain activities. Christians, they go to church. They sing praise songs. They listen to sermons. They take the Lord's Supper. There's things they do. You also hear them, hear Christian culture reflected in their speech. They say words like amen and blessed a lot. They call one another brother and sister. They also tend to refrain from the, the unsavory aspects of popular culture like profanity, drunkenness, crude music. Like I said, culture is just the inescapable consequence of like-minded people living life together. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, their behavior and choices will reflect their belief system. Here's the danger, though. Sometimes, for various reasons, people in the world become attracted to this Christian culture, but they don't know Christ. Maybe they're going through a divorce and found support at a church. Maybe a friend invited them and they discovered a comfort they didn't have before. Maybe they were reconnecting with their roots as they were raised in the church. Whatever the case, they entered the church, but not through the narrow door of faith and surrender to Christ as Lord. In time, they look like they fit right in. Everyone else stands up to sing these songs, so they stand up. Everyone else gives a little money in the offering, so they give a little money. Everyone else drinks this little cup of juice for communion, so, so they drink. They start to talk and act like other Christians, and they are happy to do so. They feel spiritual, but they're still unconverted. They're still lost and dead in their sins. Maybe they never hear the clear preaching of the gospel with this demands at their church. Maybe they're just oblivious, but they've confused conversion with culture. They've been led to believe it is enough to talk and act like a Christian, but it is not. In 2 Timothy 3, 5, Paul warns against those who hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. The word for godliness is used of religion. These people appear very religious. They partake in the forms of worship. They happily go through all the external motions, but their hearts are still far from God. They don't know God. Christ does not know them as his disciples. They've been attracted to Christianity for various reasons, peace, comfort, support, meaning, community, but they fall short of the main reason, beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. They're not true worshipers. They've not been born again. This was the main problem with the Pharisees, whom Jesus constantly rebuked. You can turn now to Matthew 23. Judaism had formed its own culture, complete with its own rules, customs, and traditions. And the Pharisees were experts at these traditions. They fully immersed themselves in this religious culture, which went way beyond what God commanded them. On the outside, they played the part of a devout Jew better than anyone. They fasted twice a week. They paid tithes on everything. They ceremonially washed before every meal. I mean, you name it, they did it. But Jesus reveals they were complete hypocrites. While they looked shiny on the outside, they were still rotten on the inside. They had never submitted their hearts to the Lord. Their religion was merely an expression of their pride. All they had was self-righteousness, not true righteousness. So listen now to how Jesus condemns them. Here's Matthew 23, look at verses 27, 28, where he says of them, 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Same word, by the way, from Matthew 7, Jesus condemns those who practice lawlessness. It's just not enough to go through the motions. It's not enough to partake in the external forms of worship. Christianity has a culture, but it is not a culture. Our speech, our behavior, our values, they all matter. The the external forms of worship, they do matter to God, but only when they come from a genuine heart of faith and worship do they find any meaning as pleasing to the Lord. Like 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And, and this type of heart for God comes only through new birth. And that happens when a person yields themselves over truly to Jesus as Lord by faith, not works. It's safe to say, though, that, that relying on religious culture is no grounds for assurance. And sadly, there will be all too many very religious people, people who went to church their whole lives, even participated in Sunday school, but like the Pharisees will be cast to hell, kept out of the kingdom on the last day because they were obsessed with everything around the Savior except the Savior. Their, their faith was not really in him. And don't do that. Religious culture is not the way to salvation or the assurance of salvation. And neither is number three, relying on religious heritage. Relying on religious heritage related But this is another means of false assurance that that plagued the Jews and trips up many Christians today. Not only did they rely on their external religiosity for assurance, but they relied on their religious heritage. They should have known better. Again, Jesus, John 3, he talks to Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews, tells him you must be born again. He expected him to know this. Like, you're supposed to know this. You're saved by your second birth, not your first birth. But they didn't know better. They pretty much believe that you inherit salvation by birth if you're a Jew. I mean, in other words, that they thought they were essentially born into kingdom status because of their lineage. They were physical descendants of Abraham. God promised his blessing to Abraham and his seed. They're the seed. They're not filthy Gentiles. End of story. But several times in the Gospels, we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees boast in Abraham as their father. That they place their confidence in their right standing before God uh, in their lineage. But you'll, you'll notice, we'll go back to Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist sees right through this. He does not let them get away with this. Go back to Matthew 3, this earlier passage. John sees right through them and notice how he, he uncovers their false assurance. Matthew 3, 7 through 10. John the Baptist, he's preaching, he's baptizing, he's making ready the way of the Lord. Verse 7, though, it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And, verse 9, do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Do you see here how John pulls the rug out from under them? Their their confidence, they didn't really need to repent. They had Abraham as their father. That was their confidence. But he says, not so fast. Religious heritage gets no one into the kingdom. I mean, if if God had to, if need be, he could take a bunch of stones and make descendants of Abraham from them. Personal repentance and faith is the only way through Christ. And that's something they lacked. They proved it. They bore no fruit of repentance. Their faith, their repentance, their assurance, all false. Now, another important passage I want you to see for yourself. So turn to Philippians 3. Philippians chapter 3. Thinking about the Pharisees here. There is another Pharisee who finally learned the lesson. 
There was this other Pharisee who had total assurance of salvation, but was totally wrong. This guy was completely lost and blind, but because of his religious culture and religious lineage, he was 100% convinced he was going to heaven. No way God could reject him. But he finally came to be humbled and understood that all these externals he was relying on were, were false. The Pharisee talking about, obviously, is the Apostle Paul. But listen to how he reflects on the false assurance he had before his true conversion. He thought he was saved. Yeah, surely he's going to the kingdom when he dies. But he woke up, listened to his wake-up story. Philippians 3, 3 through 8, very important passage. Philippians 3, 3. Paul says, we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised in the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. <clears throat> but verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. How do you gain true salvation? It's not by your own righteousness or works righteousness. It's verse 9 where he says, not by having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Self-righteousness counts for nothing. You need Christ's righteousness and that comes, verse 9, that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. It doesn't get any clearer than that. That's where salvation is found. But this means all of those religious externals he relied on were, were good for nothing. That's why in verse 7, he says he counted them as loss. Or even furthermore, verse 8, he says they're all rubbish. It speaks of garbage or refuse. These externals from his religion, his culture, to his lineage. And they were actually damning. Because he made them his source of confidence. They were leading him into false assurance. And likewise, all those who make anything other than Christ their source of confidence will find both false salvation and inevitably false assurance. I hope you know better. I hope like Paul, you, you too have woken up. But many Christians today still fall into this trap. Some people find assurance because, well, they're raised in a Christian home. They have a Christian heritage. Ask such a person their testimony, like, how did you come to salvation? They don't really have an answer. They, they don't really understand the question. Like, what do you mean? I, I've always been a Christian. Uh, I was raised a Christian. A Christian heritage is a good thing, but it does not produce salvation. A Christian upbringing does not save you. A godly lineage does not guarantee your salvation. As, a, as it has often been said, God does not have grandchildren. He only has children, meaning the, the faith of your parents does nothing to save you. You have to come to your own individual uh, faith in Christ as Lord. This is a message all need to hear, but I think youths especially, and even those who are raised in a Christian home, by the choice of their parents, they will be raised immersed in a Christian culture. Not, not a bad thing, but it's going to beg the question, are they real? Are they, are they alive? Is their faith real? Have they borne fruit in keeping with repentance? Time will tell. But for now, let no one's faith or assurance rest on their upbringing, on their heritage, but in Christ. You know, in a sense, God is raising up descendants of Abraham from stones. Every time someone believes and comes to new birth, he's taking out their heart of stone, giving them a heart of flesh. He's bringing them to life. But this faith is the only way. Now, a couple more to go here. Number four, a fourth means a false assurance. Number four, relying on material prosperity. Relying on material prosperity. 
might sound a little foreign to you, but I've encountered several people like this. They call themselves Christians. They would say, Jesus, Lord, Lord. And they're blessed. They're richly blessed, but they define blessing like the world does, health and wealth. And they're, they're filthy rich. They seem to be perpetually illness-free. They have a great life. And they believe their prosperity is a sure sign of God's favor. They might even give him the credit. Like, I, it's, I, I owe all this to God. They have such a trouble-free life. You know, I've known people like this. Some, they start in poverty. They're praying desperately for prosperity. Then they finally get it. And they believe it was God's doing. And then they think, well, how could this not be proof that God is with me? He's for me. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. This is their assurance, their prosperity. But the main problem with this is that there is no biblical correlation between material prosperity and spiritual condition. I say that again. There's no biblical correlation between your material prosperity, have or have not, and your spiritual condition. There's no link there. I mean, how many true godly believers have lived lives of poverty and sickness? I don't know, like all of the apostles. But God is faithful to use all of these trials to grow their faith and to bring out greater good, Romans 8, 28. And on the flip side, how many genuinely wicked people prosper in this life? According to Psalm 73, a lot. You can expect the wicked to prosper in this age. It's the whole point of Psalm 73, but don't fear. God will still judge. He will cause their foot to slip on the last day. They'll be held accountable. But by no means does material prosperity prove God's favor, let alone his salvation. Now, look, sometimes God does materially prosper his people according to his own purposes. That's his prerogative. We'll thank the God from whom all blessings flow. That's not a problem, but we're never promised such prosperity in this life. And it's never made the mark of a true Christian. Don't forget at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus showed us that God has a different definition of blessed. We think of blessing as money and health. It's what we pray for. But God has a different definition. We learn in the Beatitudes, it's more about righteousness. It's more about knowing God and his son. His currency of blessedness is holiness, not money. But look, haven't we seen that this pattern form through all these examples of false assurance that you know, the false believer does not really care about holiness. Per the Beatitudes, they, they don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're living for self. They're cherishing their sin. They call Jesus Lord like those in Matthew 7. But as he said of them, their actual lives are characterized by lawlessness. But they soothe their conscience by, by clinging to one of these means of false assurance. Their conversion experience, religious heritage, religious culture. But here's what's especially troubling about this means of false assurance, material prosperity. Consider a person who you know, would call themselves a Christian. They would surely call Jesus Lord, Lord, but they've not actually bowed the knee to Jesus as Lord. They've not turned from their sin. So they, they pretty much live life according to their rules, their desires, but they're convinced they've got no problem because look how much they prosper. They have good, God's favor. How could they be unsaved? But they're totally deceived and I'll tell you what, in that case, their prosperous, trouble-free life is actually a sign of their false assurance. This comes straight out of Hebrews 12. So go ahead and turn there, Hebrews 12. Do you want to know, how can you spot illegitimate children of God, aka a false believer? One way. One way is to look for those who are never disciplined by the Lord. And you can tell that because they're never led to repentance. That's how you can tell. Hebrews 12. I mean, can, can a genuine believer fall into serious sin, sometimes long-lasting sin? Yes, they sure can. King David is a classic example. But precisely because they are God's child, he's not going to allow them to persist in that rebellion for very long. Like a loving father, he's going to discipline them to show them the error of their ways and to lead them to repentance, to the way of holiness. Such discipline can take many forms. It can be trials, it can be suffering. It could just be the consequence of your own sin. 
many forms. But what do you make of a person who has never received the Lord's discipline in any form, even though they're living in in an ongoing serious sin? What do you make of that person? Hebrews 12, look at verse 4 through 8. He says in verse 4, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But, verse 8, if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Do you see here God's love in disciplining his children? When you persist in some moment of sin or rebellion, God is happy to use some thorn in the flesh, some some trial to move you to repent. And that is God's love and mercy to you because sin actually steals joy and peace and blessing. And as you bear fruit in keeping with repentance, you actually gain assurance. God's discipline is a sign you are his child. You belong to him. He's not going to let you go. But those who receive no such discipline, they really find the opposite. And I just find this to be much more common among those who materially prosper in this life. They likewise, they're living in some ongoing sin and rebellion, but they don't suffer. There's no trial. There's no tribulation. Nothing wakes them up. They're never led to repent. They think their prosperity, that the fact that they lead a trouble-free life is a good sign. But in this case, it's actually a very bad sign. It is as if God has handed them over to their sin and rebellion and their self-deception. It's just like verse 8 says, those who are without discipline are revealed as illegitimate children. And you know that because, again, they're never led to repentance. Their faith and their assurance are false. So you need to make sure that you divorce in your mind any correlation between material blessing and spiritual condition. There's no link. Prosperity proves nothing either way. And especially among those who prosper, do not be self-deceived into tolerating ongoing sin in your life. You have no excuse. Rather, regard the discipline of the Lord, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and you'll find real assurance. Now, one more to go. Let's finish here. Number five, relying on selective obedience. Relying on selective obedience. In our time this morning, we're trying to expose many false means of assurance. We've yet to reveal the true basis of assurance. That's something we'll do next week. One more message before we move on. Where do you, how do we find true assurance? We already know one thing from Matthew 7, though. What did Jesus say? Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father will enter. We are saved by faith alone, but there is such a thing as false faith. And so with assurance, you're really asking the question, how do I know whether I have a living or a dead faith? The short answer to that is, well, how do you tell if something is living? Does it grow? Does it bear fruit? Good trees produce good fruit. And Jesus defines this fruit in Matthew 7 as obedience to the Father's will. Does your faith in Jesus as Lord ever show itself in actually obeying Jesus as Lord? How much obedience are we talking about here? Like like perfect obedience? No, none of us are perfectly obedient. But that's also why we've seen this theme of repentance show up all the time, right? We also repent. But we can say this here with, with false assurance. Selective obedience does not cut it. Selective obedience is a very crafty way to convince yourself you're a genuine Christian, but it doesn't work. Here, think of the rich young ruler. For the sake of time, I'll summarize it. The rich young ruler, Matthew, later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus uses the law to reveal the state of his faith. He tells him, if you want to inherit eternal life, keep the commands. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Love your neighbors yourself. To which the rich young ruler replies, I've kept all these from my youth. 
Now, for one, he's likely evidencing a self-righteousness. But even if we assume he largely kept these commandments, Jesus knows he's dealing with selective obedience. So he's going to hit him where it hurts. He tells him, all right, one more thing. Just like sell all your stuff, sell all your property, give to the poor, and then come follow me. And at this, the man went away grieving because it says he was one who owned much. He kept many of the commands, but he just kind of skipped over those concerning greed and covetousness. And Jesus said all this to expose his heart and his lack of saving faith. This man came up to Jesus calling him good teacher, but he wasn't actually willing to do what the good teacher said. So talk is cheap. If Jesus really is the Lord of Lords, and you confess that, I mean, shouldn't you be then willing to surrender all and do whatever he says? But those who selectively obey him prove that they're still the Lord of their life. They've not given up the throne of their heart to Jesus. They still sit on that throne. They'll make the final call of how to live, what to do. That means all the assurance they might derive from their other obedience and fruit is null and void. And I believe this is another very relevant means of false assurance today because you just see it in droves among the hordes of false churches in the land. This generation has seen church after church completely mutilate God's clear word and redefine morality to fit a depraved culture, especially when it comes, as you know, with sexual sin and LGBT issues. You have many in the church now they are calling evil good and good evil. They've relabeled homosexuality and transgenderism as righteous. They've totally rejected God's word on these issues, but they comfort themselves in the fact that like they keep other of his words. They keep his other commands. They don't murder. They don't commit adultery. They don't steal. They love their neighbor as themselves. This is quite a selective blind obedience. And if you were to walk into one of these churches today, PCUSA, United Methodist, Episcopal, Evangelical, Lutheran, Unitarian, do you think all these people believe they're going to heaven? Of course they do. And we're still talking about millions of people. I can't see any of their individual hearts, but it does make me fearfully wonder how many of these people who call Jesus Lord will be among the many who say to him on that last day, Lord, Lord. But he says, I never knew you. And false assurance is not a small problem. But as problematic as false assurance may be in American Christianity, and it is a big problem, as we close here, we need to remember that the purpose of our time this morning has not been to point the finger at other Christians or other churches, but ourselves. To first and foremost examine self. That's why we're looking through these means of false assurance. Don't forget 2 Corinthians 13.5, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith, examine yourself. That's what we need to do. As you hear all this this morning, you should be asking above all, like, not what about my friend, but what about me? Is my assurance a house of cards? Have I rested my faith on the wrong things? Far be it from you to do so, but if even one false deceived person comes to repentance, it's worth all of our time. And that is the answer to false assurance. And that is the path to true assurance we'll learn. Repentance. As believers, we are meant to live in confidence in our faith and in Christ's coming. 1 John 2.28 tells us to have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. We're to live confidently knowing we are his. But that confidence is directly tied to following him. Hence the next verse, 1 John 2.29 It says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. And he also adds regarding Christ's coming. This is uh, 1 John now 3, verse 3. It says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. We will learn more about that next week when we see the positive side of true assurance, but You know for sure, for now, unrepentant sin has no part of it. From Christ's teaching in Matthew 7 to everything we've considered this morning. These all may be hard truths, but they're God's mercy to you if they lead you to repentance. Everyone must abandon their sin, turn to the Lord. They will find a gracious, forgiving master, but they must turn to him in full. They must abdicate the throne 
enthrone Christ by faith all the way. There's no holding back. That's true faith, and that's where true assurance is found. If the Lord Jesus hasn't told us enough hard things to to wake us up, to challenge us, well, we can add one more. Just listen here. One final passage, Revelation chapter 3. He gives a message to the seven churches. Listen to his message to the church of Sardis. Revelation 3, 1 through 3. What does he say? He says, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write. And then he says, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. I know you, you have a name that you're Christians, but you're actually dead. He says in verse 2, wake up. Verse 3, remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. This is a hard message, but it's, it's also a loving message. Wake up, remember the truth, keep it, repent. His four commands to that church. It's a message we all need to hear, consider, and heed before it's too late. Because one day it will be too late. The day is not today. At least not at this moment, but nonetheless, look inward, examine self, and let's all make sure we're truly following Christ on his narrow way. Let's find our hope in him. Let's pray together. Our God and Savior, we exalt you this morning, Christ our Savior, the only one who died for us, who rose again, the only perfect one, the only one who kept the law, the only one whose works are righteous. Christ is the author, perfecter of our faith. He's the only one. Our faith needs to rest in him alone and nothing else. Yet that faith is going to be measured by our lives, by how much we we yield our lives to him, by how much we hold on to our sin, our our self-will. We're all imperfect. We all fall short in many ways, but I pray you, you convict us this morning, all of us, to look inward. Is Christ really our Lord? Are we merely giving him the right words, but does he have our, our life in our heart? Convict us, I pray, as we think about these things, faith and assurance, we, we first and foremost look inward. Not judge our brother, but first just judge ourselves. Take the logs out of our own eyes. Are we deceived? Far be it from us, but we must heed the wisdom of your word and look inward. Uh, where, where is our faith and assurance found and what do they rest on? Keep us free from the wicked way, Lord. We, we, we kiss the, the hand that, that disciplines us. We love that you will reprove us. You will hang on to your true children. So keep us in the faith. Help us to persevere and then find all of our hope and confidence in Christ. But open our eyes. May we wake up, remember what is true, repent, and follow Christ alone all of our days. It's in his name we pray. Amen.